They were a race forged in both fire and ice. Their prowess as warriors is as legendary as their brutality towards their enemies. They are remembered as raiders, but they were equally capable explorers and colonists, with their legacy living on to this very day. They were the Vikings, and at the height of their power, they were a military, political, and economic superpower akin to the most powerful nations today. Yet, while legend has kept their memories alive as the centuries have driven on, legend has also served to cloud the truth of these fascinating people. In today's episode, we will explore just who the Vikings were, examine their culture, trace their rise to power, and identify their impact on the modern world. These are the Vikings. Welcome to Wars of the World. The word Viking comes from an old Norse term that loosely translates as pirate, but this blanket term actually refers to different, sometimes opposing groups. The Vikings originated from the cold Scandinavian lands that arch over the top of the European continent. With such a harsh climate and large areas of inhospitable terrain, the people who lived there found themselves having to toughen up if they were going to survive. And survive they did. Not only that, they prospered as they conquered the land they inhabited, creating settlements predominantly along the coastline that allowed them access to the seas, which offered a wealth of fish stocks for them to harvest and supplement the crops they grew on land. Like other peoples all across the world and history, nations were formed within the Viking sphere and inevitably, conflict would erupt in order to secure resources, and as such, the Vikings became adept at both conflict and raiding. These Viking nations can present a problem when trying to identify just who the Vikings were, and this is made worse by the fact that Vikings had very little in the way of a written language, and very few who could read or write in any capacity. As such, we know little about them before they left their homelands. Generally, we associate Vikings as originating from regions of modern-day Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, but as a result, you can't simply define what a Viking is, as the types of people, their beliefs, and customs varied from region to region. As such, describing someone as a Viking refers more to the behavior of raiding and a very rough geological point of origin, rather than a certain group of people. However, across time, as Viking chiefdoms and factions would grow to envelop smaller ones, many of their beliefs and customs would be absorbed by the newer power, giving rise to a shared culture. Perhaps the most important aspect of their lives was a reliance on the sea. Vikings were expert shipbuilders and skilled sailors. The Viking people are known to have been building sailing vessels since at least 350 BC, and by the 6th century, they had perfected their distinctive designs. 
These vessels, which combined sail and oar propulsion, were probably the most advanced in Europe at the time, possessing great speed, agility, seaworthiness, and were able to enter narrow rivers, giving them tremendous reach, which would prove devastatingly effective in the new age of the Vikings that was to come. Historians have long debated as to why, in the waning years of the 6th century, the Scandinavian people ventured further south than before in search of newer lands. Maybe it was just the natural result of such a strong and determined people looking for new lands to dominate. Maybe the quest for new lands was spurred on by a poor harvest or conflict with another Viking tribe, or maybe a leading Viking believed he had been instructed by one of their numerous gods to leave the cradle of Viking civilization and venture south. Maybe it was simply an accident. We will never know, but what we do know for sure is that 789 AD was the year the Vikings became aware of new lands south across the sea, and that same year, three Viking vessels originating from Norway landed on the Isle of Portland on the southern coast of the English county of Wessex. The local population assumed the vessels were crewed by foreign traders, and so a local man, known as Bedehurd, approached them demanding they make themselves known to his king in Dorchester. The Vikings, described as being Danesmen in contemporary accounts, killed Bedehurd, and in doing so, he became the first recognized victim of a Viking raid on the British Isles. Over the following four years, there are believed to have been sporadic raids by the Vikings, no doubt as a result of word spreading across Scandinavia of this new land ripe for the plunder. It was a vulnerable time for the kingdoms and peoples of the British Isles. With a total population somewhere in the region of less than one million people, there were vast areas of coastline where Viking raiding parties could land unopposed and undiscovered. After organizing themselves, they could then march on their unsuspecting target settlements, killing and taking what they wanted, and then return to their boats and be back out to sea before the local kingdoms could organize a counterattack. As if this fact were not tempting enough for Vikings looking to expand their wealth and influence, the coastline of the British Isles also had a series of monasteries which were constructed far from large settlements with gold, animals, wine, and potential slaves all sitting there for the taking. The reason for their construction in such isolation was so that the monks could live out their lives in seclusion, allowing them to devote themselves to God but in doing so, they offered the Vikings an easy target. What self-respecting Viking could resist such easy prey? The first significant Viking raid on a monastery came in 793 AD at Lindisfarne in Northumbria, a kingdom at that time ruled by Ethelred I. The raid, which most likely came from Norway, shocked and terrified the population of Northumbria and beyond for as well as demonstrating the savagery in which the Viking raiders conducted themselves, it was also an attack on what scholars of the day described as the heart of the small kingdom's Christian soul. In fact, one such scholar, an influential clergyman named Alswin, blamed the raid on the sins of Ethelred I and his court. 
Yet, despite the shock and horror of this raid and the others that followed, very little changed for the people of the British Isles. Once emotions had been tempered, they viewed these initial raids as brutal and troublesome, but in the grand scheme of things, they were a nuisance to coastal settlements in a land whose interest in the outside world very much stopped at its own shoreline. By the end of the century, Viking raids began to focus on Scotland and the northern regions of Ireland, spreading fear and alarm amongst the population of monks who had retreated to the previously undisturbed monasteries there. Recognizing the threat, many monasteries were abandoned and the monks who once occupied them now found themselves retreating further inland. However, for the coastal settlements reliant on fishing, there was nowhere to go, and their inhabitants lived in constant fear that the next boat to appear on the horizon carried the bloodthirsty Norsemen and riding with them, death. A Little Bit De Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit De Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. In 835 AD... The first raid on the British Isles by Danish Vikings took place when a raiding party attacked the Isle of Sheppey in southern England. Being so far south, away from where the Viking attacks had previously been focused, there were still undefended monasteries along the coastline ripe for pillaging. In 855, Danish Vikings returned to the Isle of Sheppey and established a permanent settlement there, with which they could continue their raids along the English coast and eventually further inland. This would trigger the start of a new Viking policy towards the British Isles and the rest of Europe. No longer were they simply lands to plunder and then return home. Now, the Vikings were set on colonization and making these new lands their new home. And to do this, they needed to wage a full-scale war against the current landowners. Norwegian Vikings focused their colonization effort on Scotland and Ireland, while Danish Vikings were more active against England, which, at the time, was divided into four kingdoms. Viking ferocity and skill in battle, coupled with the often ineffectual and sometimes non-existent defense of British territory, saw the Viking raiders achieve stunning success, conquering all of England save for the Kingdom of Wessex, which was left in a state of near-continuous war over the years that followed. Viking weaponry was crude but effective, and the type of weapon represented the status of the Viking in question. Swords, for example, were the most expensive Viking weapon to manufacture due to the high expense of iron and the skill required to forge such a weapon. Therefore, swords were usually reserved for the upper echelons of Viking society. A typical Viking sword was double-edged and measured around 35 inches in length, giving it significantly greater reach than most personal weapons of the opponents they encountered, who were often armed with little more than a dagger. Further demonstrating the prestige of their owners, the swords were often decorated to distinguish them and were carried in scabbards, a type of sheath manufactured of wool, wood, and leather, and carried over the shoulder, where it was easily reachable by the right hand. For the ordinary Viking, however, his weapon was typically an axe, reflecting their agricultural origins, and these were carried to the battle on their belt. 
Viking battle axes typically had long handles, allowing them to strike at an intended victim from further away. But if long range was really needed, then Vikings could adopt either their spears or their contemporary form of artillery, the bow and arrow. Vikings adopted spears for a wide range of military uses. Some were designed to impale an enemy, attempting to advance on the Vikings, close enough to use their own daggers, axes, and swords, while others were designed to be hurled against an enemy formation. Archers, meanwhile, had the role of weakening an enemy force before the fighting got close enough for either side to use their personal weapons. Originally used for hunting, the most skilled Viking archers were able to shoot off an average of 12 arrows per minute, which could have devastating effects on all but the best protected armies. And even then, this was no guarantee. Viking arrows were said to be so strong and possess so much kinetic energy that they were often able to penetrate thick wooden shields to strike at their enemies. As well as having excellent weapons, and of course, the skills to use them effectively, the Vikings also adopted effective personal armor, and at the front and center was the shield. The type of shield Vikings used can be traced back to the Iron Age, and consists of thin planking cut into a circular shape, in the middle of which was a dome of iron to protect the shield bearer's hand, known as the shield boss. Vikings also had variants of shields affixed to their ships to protect the crews from incoming spears and arrows. These were mounted along the side of the ship and were known as the shield rack. Modern recreations of Viking vessels have found when a shield rack is set up, it inhibits the vessel's performance, and so most historians agree that the shields were not mounted until immediately before the vessel was expected to go into action. The stereotypical depiction of Vikings often has them wearing helmets with horns protruding outwards from them, further emphasizing their bloodthirsty and barbaric ways. However, this may not be as accurate as once thought. Certainly, there are many images produced from the age of the Vikings displaying prominent warriors wearing such headgear, but the only complete Viking helmet from this period of history found to date does not possess horns, and neither do other incomplete examples. It seems that Viking helmets resembled their central and southern European counterparts of the day. However, papers published by the National Museum of Denmark indicate that there is some evidence to suggest that horned helmets were worn by a very specific type of Viking warrior known as berserkers. These were the most fanatical of Viking warriors, who threw themselves into battle in an almost trance-like fury, and no doubt contributed significantly to the legend of the Vikings that persists to this very day. Other theories suggest that rather than worn in battle, the horned helms were instead used in a ceremonial role. The evidence for this is that given the Vikings' proficiency at combat, they would recognize that the horns would actually be a hindrance and offer no conceivable benefit at all beyond intimidation, something which the Vikings clearly already had down. But you don't just want to dominate another land through force. You have to make it your land, and as such, the Viking warriors who cleared away the unfortunate people in their path also brought their own families and slaves with them, who employed their skills in farming the land, making the most of the new, fertile territory they possessed. 
Labor was often acquired in the form of more slaves, taken from the defeated peoples whose treatment was typically brutally harsh. While the Vikings were excellent warriors, they were also keenly aware of the danger of overextending themselves as they advanced outward. They were an invading force in a country whose population, if forced to unite and defend themselves from an all-destroying army, would outnumber them. And then there was always the threat from rival Viking factions. Any battle, even victorious ones, would drain their number. And so they slowly began to change tactics and instead began demanding money in exchange for not raiding settlements. This act of extortion, known as Danegeld, would go on to form the basis of England's taxation system. The British Isles were by no means the only area that interested the Vikings in their efforts to establish colonies. Beginning at the end of the 8th century, Vikings conducted raids in parts of northern France. These raids would at times push deep inland, attacking prominent cities of the Frankish Empire, with the Norwegian and even Danish Vikings taking full advantage of the political turmoil engulfing the empire at that time. The Vikings eventually reached Paris, where an agreement was signed that afforded the Vikings control over a region of the French coastline, a region that became known as Normandy, a name derived by the Vikings themselves as meaning land of the Norsemen. Further east, the Vikings aligned themselves with ethnic groups that had often suffered persecution at the hands of their old masters to shore up their numbers and secure their conquered lands. The Vikings raided the Belgian city of Antwerp in 836 and then pressed on into modern day Germany and the Netherlands, conquering and colonizing as they went. No longer were the Vikings known as raiders by the Christian peoples of Europe. They were now a seemingly unstoppable army of heathens bent on annihilation that no country could resist. The further they ventured, the more land there seemed to be for the taking. By the mid 9th century, Viking explorers and raiding parties were pushing further south to the Iberian Peninsula, a far cry from their Scandinavian roots. However, they would not always have it their own way and one of the first Viking excursions into modern-day Spain and Portugal saw a Viking force defeated by King Romero I, leader of the Kingdom of Asturias. Perhaps because they were now so far from supplies and reinforcements, or because the Spanish were better prepared, or simply because they couldn't acclimate to the warmer environment, the Vikings suffered a string of defeats in this region, forcing them to make peace and adopt a more diplomatic approach to dealing with local populations. However, this did not stop all of the Vikings, and they continued to raid towns and cities with varying levels of success up to the 11th century. But perhaps the most famous Viking expedition was that of Leif Eriksson, an Icelandic Viking who in 1000 AD discovered a new land to the west occupied by an indigenous people of red skin. This settlement was established in modern-day Newfoundland, Canada, and thus he is considered to be the first known European to visit North America. Several expeditions followed in Ericsson's footsteps, but Viking interest in the new continent was short-lived and at times violent, with Ericsson's own brother, Thorvald, being struck by an arrow in a fight with the indigenous peoples of what the Vikings referred to as Vinland. 
In the Icelandic sagas recounting the incident, Thorvald is said to have pulled the arrow out himself before declaring, This is a rich country we have found. There is plenty of fat around my entrails. He then soon died. With Central and Southern Europe being far easier to reach, Viking expansion primarily focused there, and it seemed that the power of the Vikings knew no bounds. But as the 12th century dawned, the Viking race was in its twilight of existence, and soon they would fade to only existing within history books. So, how did this race of warriors fall? It is easier to track the rise and fall of empires throughout history who come to a violent or otherwise messy end, but this doesn't seem to be the case with the Vikings. As said before, the Vikings were no one people or even one culture, although they were of course perceived that way by those who found themselves on the wrong end of a Viking axe. Therefore, charting the demise of the Viking Age is much more difficult than say examining the fall of Rome. So let's examine some of the key factors that came into play. Firstly, returning to the definition of a Viking as being a pirate, the age of isolated monasteries and fishing communities left undefended and being ripe for plucking by Viking raiders soon ended. Given their prominent position on the map of Europe in the 10th and 11th centuries, many kingdoms had invested much more heavily in defenses, making raids more costly and closer to full-scale military battles in their conduct. As such, there was less profit in the raids, and so Viking leaders embraced trade and economic cooperation wherever possible. Another major factor was the competition between the Viking factions and smaller kingdoms. As with any power struggle, there will always be those more powerful than others who will either dominate the weaker party through force of arms or envelop them into their own power base, thus expanding even further. This is what happened in Scandinavia and indeed across Europe as the number of little kingdoms dwindled, replaced by newer, larger and more powerful ones. Finally, in a pseudo-revenge for their invasions, the influence of the Christian populations of the British Isles and the European mainland eroded Viking culture the longer they stayed in those lands. Christianity quickly spread amongst the Viking colonies, and in turn, it was exported back to the homelands in Scandinavia. Thus, with all these factors in play, as time went on, the Vikings who had spread terror across Europe began to fade away in terms of identity, replaced by the new large populations of what would become the countries of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. That is not to say that it brought an end to the raids entirely. Harald Bluetooth, the king of a newly unified, powerful, and Christianized Denmark, instigated what history often describes as the beginning of a second Viking Age during the mid to late 10th century, when his forces conducted large-scale raids against Europe and especially England, which at the time was in a state of political flux. These raids would actually serve to finally unify all of England when Harold's son, Sven Forkbeard, began a campaign of raids against the country in 1991 AD, eventually conquering it in its entirety in 1013. 
Sven would die the following year, leaving his son Canute eventually ruling over a new Scandinavian empire that comprised of lands in England, Denmark, and Norway. But being a Christian prince and not a so-called heathen, many scholars and writers debate as to whether this was truly a Viking empire or not. The invasion of England by William the Conqueror spelled the end of any remaining Viking influence over the country's politics. Probably the last significant Viking battle occurred in 1263, when King Hakon IV of Norway invaded the young kingdom of Scotland, looking to reassert Viking control over the northern lands of the British Isles. The size of the Viking force was immense, possessing 20,000 warriors carried by 120 ships across the North Sea. Opposing them was the 23-year-old Scottish king, Alexander III. Despite his young age, Alexander was a shrewd politician and a skilled tactician, but he knew that his forces were at a significant disadvantage in the face of this armada. Therefore, he cleverly engaged in a series of stalling actions, sending out envoys to negotiate with the Vikings, but really they were there to buy time for the Scots' greatest defensive weapon to come into play, the rapidly incoming poor weather. This worked to spectacular effect as October storms ravaged the Viking fleet, sending it into total disarray. In what history remembers as the Battle of Largs, Hakon was only able to get 1,000 men on the shore, and they were quickly set upon by the Scottish army. Hakon was eventually reinforced by survivors of his fleet, but he was denied his victory. So too, however, were the Scots, and the battle ended in stalemates, with Hakon's forces confined to Orkney for the winter while he plotted his next summer campaign. But fate had other ideas, and the 60-year-old Hakon died on the island on the 6th of December, 1263. He was the last Norwegian king to mount a military assault on Scotland, with his son Magnus the Lawmender having no appetite for invasion, and instead, in 1266, he gave up the Hebrides and the Isle of Man to Scotland in return for 4,000 marks in silver. The age of the Vikings was over. While Viking culture may have faded into history, its impact on the world stage is still felt far and wide. Genetic testing has shown that Viking DNA is one of the most prominent amongst the European population. Vikings also shaped the lands in which they conquered, introducing regional boundaries, arts, traditions, and even laws, many of which are still in place to some degree today. But perhaps the biggest influence the Vikings have had on the generations that have followed is on the imagination, for good and for bad. For Christian scholars in the centuries that followed the Viking Age, they were seen as savages who represented the darkness of the non-Christian world and the salvation that came from embracing the Christian God. Later, however, the Vikings enjoyed a period of romanticization in Western literature and arts, particularly in the 19th century, where they were viewed as noble savages, rich in their own culture and traditions, yet formidable in battle traits that were admired by some burgeoning empires and sadly would influence, among others, the ideology of the Nazi movement in Germany. Today, with the advancement in archaeological techniques, we know more than ever about the Viking people, and yet they remain something of an enigma. 
perhaps it is this tantalising glimpse of the culture that spurs the imagination that has worked for centuries to fill in the blanks of these fascinating and influential peoples, now forever lost to history. And there you have the rise and fall of the Vikings. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.